Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. Right at the intersection between education, technology, creativity, and positivity. What are your perceptions of artificial intelligence or AI? Well, by the end of this podcast, you will have a working knowledge of it that will amaze your friends. Enjoy it. Welcome, Aftab Hussein and Dean Bagley, um, both from Bolton College, and both talking about, um, well, developments from artificial intelligence towards something more enlightening. So uh, welcome to you both. Thanks, Pete. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated. All right. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about, we will talk about AI more broadly, but we want to talk about um, Ada, um, one of your um, wonderful creations a little bit later on. And then we'll talk about um, FirstPass, which is a, a development from Ada. But before we do that, if we could talk about um, AI more broadly and really what is your conception of AI and what's your problem with, with this uh, definition? Um, well, uh, we think that um, AI or cognitive computing will manifest itself in all of the um, education technology services that are going to be used by our students and our teachers. Uh, at the present moment in time, these services are being used in, in a small number of discrete use cases and for addressing um, a small set of problems. But we think over a period of time, um, cognitive computing will manifest itself in virtually every part of the student life cycle. Um, one of the things that you probably notice is that I'm not using the uh, phrase AI uh, because I personally think cognitive computing is probably a, a better phrase uh, to use rather than AI. I'm not sure if you want us to explore that in a little bit more detail now. Okay, so um, so the, the term AI is a little, you feel, you feel a little clunky, a little bit too broad. Um, could you develop that a little bit? So why is uh, cognitive computing a bit more uh, helpful and specific? Yeah, well, we think the uh, AI term is uh, unhelpful as, an, uh, as a term and as an acronym, partly because um, it has lots of meanings and people have um, different definitions, uh, even when uh, Marvin Minsky and uh, uh, McCarthy um, coined the term in the mid 50s. Uh, even they felt that uh, they regretted uh, uh, the term AI when they coined the phrase uh, in, in the 50s. And uh, we prefer the term cognitive computing because it places the focus on how computers will be used to either simulate or emulate uh, human thought processes to get everyday jobs done. Mm. So uh, we, we, I certainly feel that uh, if you said to a teacher or a student, uh, what uh, a cognitive task could a computer emulate to support you as a student or a teacher, we think that's an easier conversation to be had rather than saying, well, how, how will AI be used? Because people have different perceptions of AI. 
and one of those are the ethical issues associated with it. So is there anything that you would you want to say about the ethical issues of um, AI and of, and of course cognitive computing more specifically? Oh yeah, there's loads and loads uh, that, that we could do. It's around things like privacy and um, about, about what amount of data can be tapped into to support these services. But uh, as the conversation grows uh, this afternoon, then uh, the, we'll discover that there's lots of ethical issues that arise from the design and the use and the management of these services. Mm -hmm. Okay, anything to add, Dean? And because um, I might, is it worth saying um, just how you, your roles are different from each other at, at Bolton College? Yeah, yeah, mine is very much a development role, but uh, in terms of like the, the, the phrase AI, uh, the terminology for it. There's a lot of different underlying underpinning technologies that are kind of enveloped within AI um, and broadening the subject to artificial intelligence in general. Um, sometimes people get confused. What's the difference between machine learning and AI? Well, AI, machine learning is just an aspect of AI. Um, the other thing is there's been a lot of influence through Hollywood and things like that, that mars the perception of what artificial intelligence is currently and what it can be. Um, also, <clears throat> I think there's a, there's a phenomenon that's been registered and identified where everything is artificial intelligence until we actually achieve it. And then it's no longer artificial intelligence. It's just a computer program that works in a certain way to facilitate something. Um, so, mm. yeah. So it's, it's all very much a work in progress until it happens, yeah. Yeah. Okay, shall we move on to Ada? Um, yeah, yes, yes. But I think um, uh, it's interesting to um, look at, um, at the present moment of time, AI or cognitive computing plays a very uh, small role. And most people, when they go into a school or a college or a university, the, the services, the technology services that they use, the digital services that they use, probably uh, make very little use of uh, AI. Mm -hmm. they, they probably make very little use of um, machine learning. Uh, and that's an interesting one because we certainly envisage a future where um, AI or machine learning or cognitive platforms will play a more uh, of a prominent uh, role. And we certainly think that every service on the campus will be touched by uh, these services and shaped by these services. Mm -hmm. So, um, but certainly um, Ada and FirstPass will be one of these services that manifest themselves now in the future. Yeah, so I mean, a slightly crudely utopian question for both of you, if, if, if forgive me uh, in advance, but um, could it be that because of, um, you know, the, the cognitive computing services like Ada, what will happen in the future is that uh, AI, if forgive me, will crunch the numbers and do the analysis of the data so that teachers can concentrate on on these sort of soft skills and supporting students and, and so on? Um, well, the the, um, the the thing that you just described isn't necessarily new. Um, uh, academics in America, notably like uh, Pressey and uh, Skinner, uh, were touting these um, uh, the, the, these uh, futures way back in the 20s. So, so when we say machines would uh, take over some of the jobs and alleviate the teacher from some of the workloads and make the teacher's life a lot easier, 
and uh, allow the teacher to support the uh, students in, in a more meaningful way and allow the teacher to focus on the more important things when supporting his or her teachers. So uh, the, 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 that isn't uh, a, a new manifestation uh, that that's mm. been uh, fair thought about within the education technology sphere since uh, uh, the, the mid twenties were when Pressy and Skinner uh, started talking about uh, using teaching machines to support uh, the students. Mm. And should we feel optimistic about the possibilities that um, this kind of technology can can um, can help develop? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, we think there's lots of wins to to, to be gained by, by their use, but also also at the same time, as we find out later on, that so some of these aspirations and uh, desires need to be tempered uh, by some of the ethical issues that arise. I think okay. where we've been really successful is. Um, identifying and utilizing aspects of artificial intelligence that benefit students in such a way that um, it's not intrusive. And what we're trying to do is implement solutions. I mean, we aren't developing artificial intelligence algorithms or anything like that. We're, we're incorporating existing technologies into what we do in everyday life with the students and I think when we do that in such a way that um, it benefits the students practically and we're not intentionally trying to say well we can use AI for this we can use AI for that we're not trying to force artificial intelligence solutions into our processes but identifying those technologies which exist currently and uh you know, applicable for practical uses. Um, I think that's where we've seen the most gain. Mm. Mm. Okay, so a good time to move on to talk about Ada, um, if that's okay with you. So um, I'll start with my sort of crude uh, potted history, if you like. So uh, once upon a time, Lord Byron had a child and called her Ada, and uh, she eventually started developing Charles Babbage's um, work uh, on uh, initial computing or sort of, you know, what would later become computing and uh, developed it way beyond the ability to just calculate. So it became the wonderful thing that it is now. But please take it from there because I'm way outside my comfort zone. Yeah, like uh, we, we uh, decided to, well, did, when Dean and I had a conversation late 2016, in fact, uh, many, many years before that, uh, we started talking about um, having a, a, a service that sat on the student's homepage where we envisaged a future where they could ask a question about a whole manner of uh, subjects and topics and campus services, and they could elicit a response from the screen. Uh, regarding uh, all the questions that they asked, all the queries that they asked. Um, and I'm not sure if Dean could, uh, uh, could talk a, a little bit about so some of the, uh, how Ada came about and one day I arrived on the campus. Yeah, um, it's an interesting story. We had a discussion and I, I think I said, wouldn't it be great if you could go to one place to get information for anything that you wanted? And I, I had in mind, a live service where there was a human at the end of the um, at the end of the process that could assist in you know directing people to information. Um, I did think about AI, but I I personally didn't think the technology was at a stage where it would be uh, reliable and efficient enough. And um, 
after I parked up and said, why don't you use AI? And I didn't think much of it. And um, I think I went on holiday for two weeks. I came back and after I've had, um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, a rudimentary JavaScript um, AI bot in place. And I said, well, if you really want to go for this, um, let's investigate proper solutions. So we had a look at IBM Watson. So I implemented a test implementation of IBM Watson, which um, essentially just said, hello. And then it evolved to say, hello, Aftab. And then it evolved to say, hello, Aftab, here's your timetable. And so on and so forth until eventually we have quite a sophisticated implementation of a chatbot, which can answer you know, thousands of questions and have dynamic context and things like that. So it was uh, an evolution over time. But, you know, initially, I'll be honest, now, I when, when um, after I've said use AI, I thought, well, this isn't going to be as effective as a human. And maybe that is true. Um, I thought maybe this could be a little bit gimmicky. Um, and um, I was a little bit skeptical, but um, the, the the process that we've been through has changed my view on these technologies completely. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, so are you both happy to call Ada a campus digital assistant? And if so, what really is that for the, for the layman? Well, uh, there's three stages where in the uh, evolution and development of a campus digital assistant. Um, from when it starts off um, uh, doing stage one, it's very much a chatbot. Um, the chatbot is connected to all the campus data sets. And one of the most interesting thing is, is that uh, once it's connected to all your data sets, around the campus, it starts to behave contextually. So when Dean said hello to uh, Ada and uh, Ada called back Dean's name or my name on the computer, that is quite potentially, potentially a, a very powerful response that, that's uh, brought back from Ada. Mm. Because once Ada and these assistants and these chatbots know who you are uh, and they can uh, recall your name, potentially, they can uh, call upon any piece of information that's uh, wrapped around that student on the campus. Mm. So it, it can draw upon, uh, you can ask it a question like, what's my timetable? But you could also say, what's my time, what's my classes? What do I have on to this morning? Or what do I have on this afternoon or this evening? Mm. Uh, but potentially you could say, what assignments have I got on? Uh, and uh, what grades have I got for my assignment? Oh, so, so the, sorry. Go on, Dean. Yeah, from a teacher's perspective, you can ask really complicated questions like, can you show me my learners who have below 95% attendance? Mm. Uh, so you can interrogate complicated data in a very kind of simple way um, using na natural language. Now, th th that's, so even though uh, uh, I, I said there's three stages to uh, the development and evolution of a, a campus digital assistant, even at stage one, were Ada and her counterparts in other campuses uh, are used. Uh, it's still a very powerful mechanism, even at stage one, because you could pose a question and uh, garner information about uh, the college, about the university, about the school. Uh, you could garner information about all of the services that, that you could access to, uh, to on the, uh, in a school or a campus. But also more importantly, it responds contextually to you. And we think that over a period of time, 
the level of contextualization would become more profound and more acute uh, when responding to uh, queries. So for instance, when Dean as a student could ask, um, when is my next assignment due? Um, Ed and her counterparts will say, well, your assignment's due on Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. But also uh, Ada and her counterparts could quite easily say, um, uh, you also need to get such a such a, you also need to aim for a, a, a merit grade or a distinction grade on that piece of work. Mm. Now, Ada and her counterparts would suggest that because Ada knows that as a student, you want to uh, progress on to university. And Ada knows because you want to progress on to university, she also knows that uh, you need a, a certain uh, grade when you uh, graduate from uh, the institution, from Bolton College. So, so, so the responses uh, become hyper-contextualized uh, because Aidan is very familiar and the digital assistants are very familiar about your, uh, your place on the campus, where you've come from, but also, uh, interestingly, where you want to uh, progress onto and what your desires are for the future. And if Aidan has, and these digital assistants have information about your past and the, the, uh, the past of all the other students that were en entered Bolton College and uh, these campuses, and if Aidan knows about your current context and your current situation, uh, Ada can guide you and um, provide nudges and information advice and guidance about uh, how to progress for the future. So when you ask about your assignment that's coming up, Ada can say, you need to get merit grade or a distinction grade um, because she knows about your desire to go to university. But also if you're struggling with your piece of work, Ada could potentially say, look, Dean, you're free on Thursday afternoon and so is your tutor uh, on Thursday afternoon. Shall I arrange an appointment for, for you for Thursday afternoon or what have you? Now, that's when Ada um, uh, starts to behave and function as a digital assistant in stage two of the actual um, uh, evolution of a campus digital assistant. So at stage two, uh, uh, Ada becomes more assistive and starts to do support activities and workflows on the campus that supports you as a student, but also uh, the teachers and the support teams around the campus. Okay, so second iteration is hugely helpful, of course, to the students. And um, at what point, I mean, this is a two-part question, so forgive me in advance, but um, what about the potential security risks posed at this stage? Um, so, for example, if you were a student, there were there, there were maybe ways to hack into it or subvert it in some, some way. So, for example, what, what, what are the, what, what percentage of students on health and social care got triple distinction star? Right, and that's nothing to do with me. It's not my subject, but I just want to know. Yeah, so we, we take security very seriously, as as everyone should, and um, we we do have measures in place, uh, multi-factor authentication, and a variety of other things. Um, but what we tend to do, in addition to to technical solutions to um, um, security issues, is avoid hosting or displaying personal sensitive information, especially as defined um, in GDPR. Um, so personal details and things like that, we, we, we do not display 
um, mm. and do not do not store within within the um, the digital assistant. So, for instance, um, when um, a student makes a call to Ed and says, "What's my exam? Uh, what exam uh, results do they get?" Um, that call that goes out to um, IBM Watson, which uh, is a platform that we use to uh, um, um, process the, the natural language processing for us. And Watson tells us what the, uh, the student has uh, uh, has asked, and then based on that uh, information, uh, IBM Watson tells us what what's been sought for sought after, and mm. then we provide a response. But uh, what Dina said just then is that. Uh, IBM and the Watson platform has no idea who's asked for that question. Um, there's no unique identifier that a third party platform like uh, Watson or IBM or Microsoft or Amazon or Google uh, can identify that student with. So we've been very mindful about uh, what we present to third party software platforms, AI platforms, when we are curating and designing and using uh, these services here at the college. Yeah, so the, the way that we've implemented it, basically, no, no dynamic, contextualized, personal information gets presented to the AI vendors. Um, it's injected at at, at, at our level um, during during the, the when the information is passed back to the student, basically. Now that's important because um, if there's no confidence in the service, uh, if there's no um, trust in the service, then people aren't, aren't going to be using it. If they say, well, you're disseminating this information out to the world and other platform providers could access the information, then we think the level of trust would fall and the usage of the platform will fall as a consequence of those, um, uh, those perceptions of uh, the platform. Mm. Well, the, so despite these uh, security risks and GDPR and so on, I'll move on to the second part of my question, which is that um, Ada is hugely helpful to me if I, if I pose the question, I'm suffering from anxiety and I can't tell my mother. So what happens then? So uh, one of the early uh, things that we, we thought that Ada and the digital assistant here on campus, and I think all digital assistants elsewhere as well, would serve, would be general purpose digital assistants. So as well as providing services or uh, information about campus life and college life and so on, and about your studies, there'll be also uh, times when you do have um, uh, conversations with Ada that are, are around uh, safeguarding and well-being. So mm. uh, in the early period of uh, the Ada project, we, deliberately um, and mindfully approached uh, the mental health team at the college. And we said, we got Ed on, uh, on the screen. We envisaged that students would be asking about timetables and uh, opening hours for the library, but potentially they could also ask about uh, mental health questions. They could say, look, I'm being bullied. I'm not feeling well. Uh, I'm really anxious about these exams coming up. I'm self-harming or what have you. And what what do what what does Ada need to respond and how does Ada need to respond when students pose those queries or sentiments towards Ada on the screen? So uh, uh, what we did was the uh, mental health team and the student services team uh, uh, presented uh, us with text or hyperlinks and guide information advice and guidance to present back to the student, and also. Um, 
one of the uh, most commented aspects about ADA over the years has been the fact that ADA will uh, ping or notify colleagues on the campus about a safeguarding query. So if a student has presented or posed a query that perhaps needs a, a teacher or a tutor to support that student with, then we, we get alerted to that uh, that fact. Mm, okay, wonderful. Um, sorry, that, uh, Dean. That's important because um, well, a lot of our students are 18 or, or, or younger, and even our adults as well, um, we think we've got access to that data. We know that that student has posed a safeguarding query to ADA, uh, and what do we do? Do we uh, accept that data on the screen or the database and we do nothing about it and we play a passive role? Or do we say we, we've got that information, we're aware of it, and if we are aware of it, what's our responsibility as adults in the, uh, at the college to support that uh, young adult uh, at the college? So mm. uh, it reinforces um, all of our uh, safeguarding and well-being policies around the campus and care for that student. So uh, people mm. pick up that query and they approach that student in a sensitive manner and say, do you need help or guidance? How does um, a query to ADA become a safeguarding issue when there are certain trigger words, for example, that, that generate some kind of alert to staff? Because they're not going to use the word safeguarding, of course, are they? Yeah, so, so there, are, there are trigger words that will throw up um, an intervention. And we, we do get false positives as well. Yeah. But if you think about it, um, for every false, 50 false positives that you get, if you get two genuine cases of concern, um, it's worthwhile to you know to intervene i think it was a difficult decision but i think it is a difficult decision whether to have a chatbot that notifies people of someone's vulnerability i think it's um you know quite an important ethical consideration um for example you know if if you were at home and you were putting words into google about your mental health and you were struggling you might get referred to um you know um a suicide prevention line or something like that but the government's not going to turn, turn up on your door and ask you if you're okay whereas in the context of what we're doing somebody will check up on that student and um i think it is the correct decision um in the context of education and the the vulnerability and the ages of the students that, that we do do that and there's a precedent as well like uh, there's been uh, stories in the past and uh, incidents in the past where students have taken their own lives, uh, especially in, uh, on a HE campus. And parents have, uh, uh, have asked, if you're aware of that information, uh, what could have been done to, if you had acted upon that information? Could mm. my, car, my son or daughter, uh, uh, would my son or daughter have been supported earlier uh, um, before this uh, awful incident happened? Yeah, and, and after you have talked about the, the existence of campus digital assistance on HE com, uh, campuses, haven't you, with uh, with adults? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Lancaster have done a wonderful job with their Ask LU, uh, Leeds Beckett, Staffordshire University, uh, UCL. They've all uh, embarked on this journey. And we think that these pioneers within HE uh, are leading the way. But we think that 
these digital assistants will become commonplace in the near future. I, I certainly think that every child and every teacher in the UK and around the globe will one day be supported by a lifetime companion that supports their studies. Mm, fantastic. But, uh, that will happen one day. Uh, it doesn't matter when and whether or not the larger um, uh, education technology and uh, companies uh, uh, come on board. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's clear that the sophistication of, of ADA is, is growing. Uh, what next for ADA? Um, well, the next one is um, uh, stage three of the uh, evolution process of a campus. So stage one is back to the chatbot. It knows everything about the college life and the campus and about you. Uh, the second stage, it starts to support certain workflows and activities. Uh, and that's quite deterministic because we determine the rules about what it does. And the safeguarding rule is one of them. We say, if this uh, occurs on the bot, then you need to notify X, Y, Z on the campus. And on the third element is when um, the, the learning becomes more unsupervised. And uh, we're starting a, a bit of that already. Like for instance, when a student asked about um, a general knowledge question, uh, we, we take advantage of a platform called Wolfram Alpha and Wolfram Alpha acts, acts as a catch-all for subjects, all manner of subjects that are posed. And we think that that's actually added to quite a, a valuable service to, 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 our, to, to, uh, to campus life here. But we also think that um, at the moment we're manually entering question and answer pairs into the ADA platform. And one of the things that we're investigating in the future will be what happens if we give Ada a, um, a Moodle a, a VLE web page about a subject topic? What happens if we give Ada a, a library um, uh, the database full of documents about a subject topic? Can a student pose a question to Ada? And Ada then discover, discovers a response and presents that back to the student without us having to manually hardwire a response to a given set of questions. Right, yeah. I can just imagine uh, revision changing uh, beyond recognition so a few days yeah. before an exam, this kid shouting, you know, what are the ingredients? What were the causes of the Jacobite revolution? And uh, a million other questions. Um, there is a, a bottleneck in the curation process. And I think teachers can't sit there for uh, hours and days and months at a length over a period of years to curate all the possible Q&As that could possibly come from the students around, around the campus. And right. students pose questions in all, all, all manner of ways. And we think it's an impossible job for a small group of teachers to do that. But one of the things that, um, uh, that came about during the uh, COVID pandemic was the Ada Goes to School platform. And, and uh, perhaps Dean can talk a, a bit about that, about how we're using a collaborative a crowdsourcing model yeah, mm, the, ed, ed, yeah, the Edward the School platform is um, essentially an interface where a teacher, um, a manager, a department, an entire college or a university can curate their own chatbot rather easily through an interface that we've developed. And um, it, it's uh, it, what we try to do is take away the difficult steps that are involved in content curation and make it as simple as possible for the end user to manage and develop their own chatbot. And uh, also, in addition to that, there are features in there which allow 
multiple people to work together on the same service. So um, crowdsourcing. Um, so essentially what you could have um, would be say 10 different computing IT lecturers from around different colleges in the UK, all curating a computing IT chatbot together. Um, okay. that's what that so, the, so the idea is that a teacher would spend five minutes teaching Ada some Q&A pairs about a subject topic. But if there's tens of students, uh, teachers, or hundreds or thousands of teachers in the UK, around the world, then a little bit of input from individual teachers mounts up to an incredibly large number of question answer pairs that Ada could answer around that subject. Mm. And but, but we think that a participative and collaborative um, model for developing um, these AI services will be the future. We think these clause siloed services that we get right now will disappear. And we think that the future is one where teachers um, collaborate and participate uh, on a platform to build up a knowledge base for these digital assistants in the future. Mm. So, so that we, we think that that's a, a welcomed uh, model. And we think uh, when we look forward to uh, having more people use the platform going forward. Okay. and that platform may have a face, a human face, an animal face, an animated face. Um, but I'd imagine over the next few weeks, months, uh, after you'll be engaged in some very passionate debates, because students get very passionate about this kind of thing, about what they, they should look like. So maybe they should look like Ada, maybe they should look like me, and so on. So what would you want to say about that? Yeah, like um, at the moment, uh, Ada uh, doesn't have a, 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 has a visual presence on our student homepage and our mobile phones. Uh, but um, you type in a question and there's a, a mobile or a, a desktop interface that you interact with. But Ada has no voice. Uh, Ada doesn't have a persona or an avatar on the screen. You type in a question and you get some text or multimedia answers back on the screen. So one of the things that we're, uh, I started to explore recently is you know, under what context could we use a, a digital human or a, a digital avatar uh, and present that on the screen uh, to a, a, the, the student. So one of the things that we've done recently is uh, created a, a, an Ada kiosk service. And perhaps I could hand over to uh, Dean about some of the challenges uh, that, that we're facing right now about that, the, the, that whole service. Yeah, I've, I've got, I was really excited by this project and um, I've spent a lot of time on it over the past few months. And um, we, uh, using a few different vendors, uh, mainly one vendor, but we're, we've experimented with a few. And the visual persona of the digital human on screen is very realistic. And it's fascinating that people have very different reactions to it. Um, for the most part, people are very kind of like, wow, isn't that amazing? Um, because the, the animation is um, very anthropomorphic. Um, but some people have a very visceral response and dislike it because of its realism. You know, you get mentions of the Uncanny Valley thing. Um, so we're experimenting with releasing that and um, just putting a, a visual persona to the project has been a fascinating process. Mm. Now, the actual... Um, the people's perceptions of, um, of Ada as a digital human on the screen varies. Some people have lots of empathy for Ada on the screen. 
and others have uh, an adverse reaction and they and they definitely feel uh, this idea of an uncanny valley. And uncanny valley is when uh, you're presented with an avatar, a digital human on the screen, and you have an adverse reaction to that digital avatar, to that to that character on the screen. In fact, you're actually repulsed by that character <laughs> on the screen, yes. and you have a, a very negative reaction to that avatar that's presented on the screen. Now, there was a um, a very famous uh, um, uh, academic in the uh, in 1970 uh, from Japan called uh, Masahiro Mori. And he's the one that came up with the phrase uncanny valley. So he basically said that as you um, create a, a digital persona on the screen, it could be a cartoon character, it could be a, a robot or what have you. And at first, um, people have lots of empathy for it and there's some warmth towards it. But as it develops more human-like features and human-like traits, people will say, yes, it's still cute. I still got empathy for it. I can relate to it still. But when you, but he said that you reach a point where it becomes very human-like, and then all of a sudden your empathy towards it completely switches off, and you have a negative reaction towards it. And mm. this phrase has become the uncanny valley. Now, the lessons that I learned from his project was that don't make the avatar or the digital humans too human-like. Well, there's a, there's a dip in the. They call yeah. it the uncanny valley because there's a, there's a dip in the progress. So once it's once it gets quite human but not human enough, is when people have the adverse reaction. Yeah. And then after that, the the, the dip in the progress bar accelerates in the in the linear bar. And um, the, the 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 once it gets past that point where it's <clears throat> realistic but not just not realistic enough, people are comfortable again at that point. Yeah. So we can ask ourselves. When we're designing a, an avatar, a digital human for Ada, how far do we go? Like, do, do we, like Maury said that, make the eyes a little bit larger, make the nose a little bit smaller. So it, it becomes less human-like, but it's still representative of a human on the screen, but it is developed in such a state that the person who's uh, interacting with the avatar knows that it's a chatbot or a digital assistant and can relate to it and has empathy towards it, but is not frightened by it. Mm. And of course, I won't go into the voice because that's a, a, another minefield, isn't it? Of course. But, uh, but, 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 I, uh, but we've, one of the reactions could be to say, well, why have you got a female character? Why have you got a female assistant? Uh, are you insinuating um, uh, stereotypes uh, and biases uh, in, in producing Ada? But um, when we started the Ada project, our anchor point was Ada Lovelace. So we said that. We're paying homage to Ada Lovelace through the creation of the Ada Digital Assistant at Bolton College, because mm. we think she's got a wonderful story to tell. She uh, foresaw the future of uh, modern multi-purpose general computing devices uh, early as 1840, and the people around her, like Charles Babbage, uh, were really wonderful people in driving this idea about using digital machines in this steam 19th century industrial revolution era and we think uh, having Ada as our uh, anchor as a historical figure uh, is wonderful and the fact that uh, she's there and, uh, and she acts as a wonderful role model for everyone so so in, in many ways we can get a way, a way around the uh, 
picking a, around the issue around stereotype and gender bias and all that because we've got her as a uh, as an anchor but if you're, if you're another, but if you're another institution and you, and you randomly pick a, a female avatar then i think you could be prone to more criticism by using mm. sounds like you need ada without without ada you'll have chaos <laughs> um yeah now moving on from ada if, if we could to, to first pastor finally so um so first pass is is um you know this really exciting development that you're in, both involved in and it's about uh you know a computer answering questions answering open sorry providing answers to open-ended questions i got there so um where are we up to with um first pass and um obviously this, this it's, it's early days isn't it of course well um the first pass project emanated from um, uh, from Ada, so Ada um, was launched in uh, April two thousand seventeen, and in the autumn of uh, two thousand seventeen, we started to experiment on Moodle um, about using the IBM Watson platform through Ada to pose open-ended questions to students in a tutorial, and we discovered that it was indeed possible to curate a workflow that allowed a teacher to pose an open-ended question and for students to respond using freeform text on the screen. But we thought it was a rather clumsy way to do it through the IBM Watson platform. And we said, is there another way to do it? And then um, one of my colleagues, uh, Jonathan Hartz, the lead developer on the FirstPass project, and he's done a, a fantastic, lovely job on developing FirstPass over the last two or three years. And I, I basically, uh, tasked him or challenged him to say, can we find a solution to uh, curating, uh, uh, presenting open-ended questions to uh, students and where they could reply using freeform text and where a computer could be used to analyze uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, review what's being said by the student to that open-ended question. And um, Jonathan and I started exploring um, uh, natural language classification natural language classification allows us to classify or label things that are written by students in, in response to an open-ended question. So for instance, one of the questions I regularly uh, talk about is, um, why do people uh, suffer from high blood pressure and what could be done uh, to uh, combat against it? So you could classify all the things that people will say about rising blood pressure, and you could classify or label all the things that you could do to mitigate against it. Now, a teacher, uh, when um, uh, marking a piece of work, knows very naturally about uh, the, high, the reason why high pressure, blood pressure goes up and why, what you could do to mitigate against it. But we needed to use AI or cognitive platforms to say, well, how can we make a computer emulate what a teacher uh, does when marking or reviewing that student's piece of work? And natural language classification was our gateway into that field because, mm. because a computer could be trained to classify um, sentences or knowledge about a subject topic in that way. So, so it's a logical, first, sorry. So, so for the first time since the 1920s, um, we could finally present an open-ended question to a student and have a student reply back using freeform text and have a computer mediate the, the uh, formative assessment process on behalf of the teacher and the student. Prior to that, um, the main uh, um, uh, mechanism that was used to support formative assessment, even summative assessment, was 
through closed questioning techniques, like multiple choice, yes, no questions, drag and drop activities. But for the first time, we've got a mechanism now to pose an open-ended question, which completely opens up the field about how teachers could assess a student's understanding about a sort of subject topic uh, for the first time in well over a century of uh, analog machines and digital machines. Yeah, so, so as, you said, as you said, it's a logical progression from, from Ada, from a, the campus digital assistant, but the, the really exciting part is um, how it can be used for formative assessments. So give us an idea about how that might work in the, in the near future. So, for example, in an English class where, where we're asking open-ended questions all the time, um, how might that support my 16-year-old self? So, for instance, uh, let's say um, a six-year-old student is uh, studying uh, one of Shakespeare's writings called, uh, so let's say Macbeth. And uh, the teacher is uh, preparing um, students for uh, uh, an English literature uh, exam. And when doing the, um, the exam, the teacher says, typically in a, in a Macbeth uh, question, there's always a question about why is Macbeth a tragedy? What makes Macbeth a tragedy? And the, what, the, what the teacher would do is um, train up first pass with example sentences or answers that uh, against why what all the different reasons why Macbeth is a tragedy. So you could say it's uh, Macbeth's ambition uh, to to, to uh, and to become a, a ruler. It could be also about the role that his wife plays as well. Uh, so you could you've got all these uh, um, uh, themes uh, that you want to explore in that question. And then the t that teacher at Bolton College, but that teacher in Manchester, Leeds, London, Belfast, Dublin, or what have you, Wales, or Cardiff, could also teach uh, uh, first pass about the tragedy of Macbeth. And when all these teachers are training up the model over a period of time, we get dozens or hundreds of thousands of examples about why, what makes Macbeth a tragedy. And then when the uh, uh, student uh, um, responds to that query, the computer is well-placed to say, well, I know exactly what the, computer, what the student has been writing about and I can label it all up and I can tell the student to write a little bit more about uh, certain that, uh, aspects of um, uh, what makes uh, Macbeth a tragedy on the screen. Are we, um, how, far, how far away are we to being able to analyze the quality of the writing? Uh, that's that's it's very nuanced. At the moment, the focus is very much on um, subject topic knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not uh, saying, but we can say whether or not an answer is correct or not. Um, and we can say that this student is definitely talking about this facet of the, uh, the question or the answer. Uh, but they, we're not there in terms of theme extraction or context extraction yet. That's mm -hmm. one of the challenges that we've got to come in the future. And mm -hmm. We're not saying that the entire problem is uh, sorted out by first pass in the computer. Uh, one of the things that we've done, we've designed first pass so that it gives students uh, enough knowledge and feedback on the screen to improve upon the, his or her answer that they're typing up on the screen mm. before, the, before they're presented back to the teacher. So by the time the teacher sees it, hopefully the answer is in a better shape than it would normally be if there's no feedback from a computer. So, so the, the idea is that uh, the computer presents a question to the student, the student uh, writes up the answer and first pass in real time gives them some feedback. Mm. And then the student can 
um, save it, return to it, think about it, reflect about it, make improvements or edits to the answer or improvements to the answer before it's given to the teacher. So by the time the teacher's seeing it, the answer is in a, in a, a better shape and form and mm. the teacher has got less remedial uh, feedback to give to the student. And but also the, the most important thing is, is that the teacher has final remediation, the final say and final commentary in the student work. So first pass supports the student with real-time feedback, but also first pass supports the teacher because first pass provides feedback to the student in advance of the final uh, commentary that the teacher will provide. Yeah, and one of the things that excites me as a teacher, of course, is being able to interrogate that feedback with the students. You know, so say to the student, well, what's first pass said? The first, first pass said, so you know, yeah. how would you interpret that so, in terms so, of what needs to be better? So with this, we see um, first pass as a complementary service. If, if first pass is an agent, an additional agent, that agent is supporting the student and the teacher in a very, particip uh, very uh, in, in a partnership model, in a collaborative model. So the AI or the cognitive services aren't uh, doing things in isolation or independently from the teacher or the student. Uh, the first pass as a software agent, as an AI agent, is uh, uh, being uh, as being designed to work in partnership with the teacher and the student. Mm. Now, okay. one of the nice things about it is that as more and more students respond to the question about Macbeth as a tragedy, um, as more and more students answer it, and if the uh, answers that the, are presented by the student are is, is welcomed down, if it's welcomed, then it could be added to the training data for that classifier. So we could get end up with 100 students at Bolton answering that question, but equally we could get 100 students at uh, this school or that school or in a college or what have you, uh, not in the UK, but elsewhere around the globe. And in no time at all, you could have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of responses to, to first pass about Macbeth being a tragedy. So that means that with all this training data that's been supplied by the teachers and the students, first pass could potentially operate with a high degree of re reliability and efficacy going forward. Mm. Wonderful. This is uh, really interesting stuff. And, and thanks a lot for your time, both of you. It's been, it's been fascinating. Um, is there anything that you want to add about what's uh, happening in the near future? Um, yeah, it's like um, we're, we're still one of the first things to do with first pass is we're hoping to uh, pilot it with other institutions in the, in the spring term. So uh, we'll, we'll reach out to other colleges and say, well, would you be interested in uh, piloting First Pass? But also we're uh, working with JISC to see uh, if we can uh, think of a mechanism to actually share ADA with other uh, colleges across the UK as well. So uh, we're building up that service with JISC uh, right now and hopefully JISC and the college will have more to share with the further education sector in the near future. Right, and we'll talk after I've stopped recording, in fact, after. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, guys. I really, really appreciate your time. And um, thanks, Aftab. Thanks a lot, Dean. Um, and I'll speak to you both very soon. But I thank you very warmly one more time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thanks to Aftab and Dean. 
Next week, we have Dr. Tim Jordan talking about the problem of teenagers and tech. Until then, you take care of yourself now. Thank you.